This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Hello and welcome back. I'm Ken Smith, professor at the Wharton School, and you're listening to Your Money Business Radio Series XM 132. If you want some advice on what to do with your money, the show's name, want to know how to save it, invest it, buy insurance, get in a whale, just give us a call. Let the answer a question here at 1 Wharton. That's 1 844 Welcome back to the show. Kevin Reardon is the president of CFP. At Shakespeare Wealth Management in Pewaukee, Wisconsin. I did a quick checkup. 13,500 people in the cute town of Pewaukee. He has some water nearby. And just four hours north, my little town that I was born and raised a few years. Phelps, Wisconsin, one-tenth of the size population, 1,300 uh, people. And he is, uh, again, the owner president of Shakespeare Wealth Management. I graduated at Marquis University and a member of the National uh, Association National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, NAFA, that we often talk about in the show. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. Well, thanks. Welcome from, or hello from your home state of Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, I even did a weather check and get a little nostalgic, a little cooler uh, there. Go back to the phones for just a minute here. Before doing that, just remind us a little bit about your firm. If you have a typical client, Kevin, what's here she like? A higher net worth client tends to have a net worth of a few million dollars or more. But more than that, more than anything, it's a client with a high level of complexity, whether that's um, second marriage, owns a business, uh, typically have various forms of investments, real estate, retirement accounts. Um, So uh, typically um, people are coming to us when they're in a transition, whether that's transitioning into retirement, selling a business, Second marriage, widowed, those kinds of situations. Yeah, and you know we keep we keep it pretty you know complicated there in Wisconsin. I mean, even our the you know football team you know is not even owned in the traditional way. It's owned by the people. Um, again, yeah. have Kevin Reardon, president and CFP Shakespeare Wealth Management, Pewaukee, Wisconsin. Give us a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight. Six six. Let me go to Emily calling from Colorado. How can I help you, Emily? Hi. Thank you for taking the call. Um, my husband and I always find ourselves in the middle of a debate uh, with a friend of ours who is a wealth management advisor mm. as to whether or not we should continue um, acquiring investment properties. Yes. And the we're kind of looking for more explanation on the reasoning to go one route or the other. So we've got a couple investment properties that net a couple thousand dollars every month and it just seems like a really good idea to us because not only are they income producing but somebody else is paying those mortgages they're really low risk and so you kind of start to think by the end of the life cycle of that mortgage you've got a pretty decent um, you know sell those properties you've got income along the way or you keep the passive income and then it's kind of a question of whether we continue to do that with the current property we're in um, turn it into an investment and Move on to the next again. Yeah, so yeah. Curious as to what your thoughts are. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, Emily. You're the person you're talking to may be somewhat conflicted. I even 
Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, we may agree with him in the end, but he may have a reason of called commissions that he may want to get you to not invest in those properties and invest with him. But uh, t- tell me more about your situation. It sounds like this is more of a retirement um, uh, focus a strategy. You're talking about kind of longer term. Is that right? And how much have you guys saved for retirement, therefore, kind of outside of um, these these properties. Tell me about other debts besides kind of the mortgages, and how much are how many properties are we talking about? So two investment properties right now, and then our primary residence, and mm-hmm. um, both properties have sizable equity in them, good producing income. Um, we've not been super aggressive with our retirement savings necessarily. Um, yeah. I've got a four hundred one k. My husband has. Um, some some money put away um, probably will be some inheritance at some point in time, um, just little things like that. But from a, it definitely is part of our retirement strategy sure. or what. So we're tell me, give, give me your, give me the actual numbers. Uh, tell me about your four hundred one k, the little bit your husband has packed away. Uh, how, how old are you both? Uh, give me some more. So my four hundred one k is about fifty thousand, yeah. and he's got about the same kind of tucked away. In cash, okay. and then, so it's not a, it's not a ton. We've kind of taken. How old are you? Um, are you both? Thirty-seven and thirty-eight. Thirty-seven, thirty-eight. Okay. Uh, uh, kids, other debts, other. Um, I don't want to call kids debts, no. but we know they are. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. One one is more expensive than the other two. So we've got two <laughs> kids. One that's fifteen, and one that's two. Uh-huh. Um, and we don't really have any debt. Okay. I, the mortgages are pretty much it, except for the mortgages. But they're okay. really, they're yeah, they're not expensive. They're yeah. you know, it's it's very low risk. Yeah, and you keep on emphasizing. I'm not sure if you're trying to convince me on this, but you keep on saying low risk. And there's a lot of people, lots of you know, areas of the country who are just really convinced. You know, it's low risk until. It's no longer uh, low risk. I mean, I'm just saying these things can turn um, fairly dramatically. So, it, do you both have access to you and your uh, husband both have access to a 401k, um, a, or is it? It sounds like it's just maybe uh, uh, you at this point. Uh, give me some uh, more uh, details there. My 401k at this point. Just your your 401k. Okay, so you guys could be doing the you know eighteen thousand five hundred a year in that. Are you currently doing that at least eighteen thousand five hundred? I think seventeen thousand five hundred. Okay, okay, all right. So you're getting close, and then you're probably easy to bump that up because um, you could do up uh, a bit more. And it sounds like these are your primary, um, uh, you know, uh, pr- properties. And you said you, you feel like you have some equity. G- give me the how, how much uh, how much are these properties probably worth, and how much equity do you have in each? So one of them is worth about five hundred and fifty, and has somewhere between two hundred and fifty and two hundred seventy-five thousand mm-hmm. of equity. The other one was worth about two hundred and twenty-five, and I believe has about a hundred and thirty to a hundred and fifty in equity. Okay, yeah, and we always discount, you know, a little bit, but um, okay. So Kevin, I mean, your thoughts in terms of, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong; it's it's always hard when a, something's performing well. Uh, to talk about, you know, um, 
you know, the concentration of risk. And, you know, keep in mind, these are two investment properties. They sound like they're local uh, to Emily. I'm, I'm making that assumption in addition to our primary residence. Um, uh, and, uh, and Emily, I forgot to ask you, are you near, we don't ask, you know, for towns and things like that. But why do you think this is low risk? Is it a, a, a vacation resort area? Are you near a big town? I mean, why do you think, what's in your mind makes this low risk? So they're actually in two different states. One is in okay. a, um, a fast-growing part of Michigan mm-hmm. um, that just it, it has a history of quite a bit of appreciation. The other one is in a mountain town yeah. that is kind of resort-like and also has kind of just a history of phenomenal appreciation. And okay. then again, the, the key thing that's hard to get away for us is that they're you know they're producing about twenty five hundred dollars a month in income, like just passive. So it's hard to. Sure, sure. This is on top on top of the mortgages. Yeah, that's on top. Yeah, yeah. So then I I, so you're in unusual uh, case because typically people buy investment properties around them. That creates even more concentration. But you're saying one's in Michigan, the other one is in in another area, not in Colorado, or is it nearby? It's in it's in a mountain part of Colorado, Colorado, like like area of Colorado. Okay, Mm -hmm. and so global warming. That's the answer to that one. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, So Kevin, your thoughts. You know, we run into this a lot. Yeah. And first comment, if you have one rental property, we call that a hobby. If you, if you have two, you're getting serious. Uh, we don't mind if clients load up on real estate as an investment so long as they treat it as such. Um, but you can't underestimate the amount of work typically that's required to maintain those. So if the furnace goes out in the middle of the night, the water heater breaks, a pipe is leaking, you have to be able and ready to account for that. If, if one of the properties is out of state, as it sounds like, you would need some form of management company to tend to that. And if you're not close to the Colorado property, it would be the same issue. And so, so frequently when someone talks about free cash flow and these are great investments, what our experience is, is that they underestimate the real costs of carrying or of ownership. So if you're if it's truly you know this is great and after all expenses property taxes insurance maintenance upkeep um, paying a management company and you're still cash flowing at a great rate that's fantastic and in that regard you really want to figure out what your return on investment is from from these investments is it you know twenty five hundred dollars is a number but what is the percent and then how does that compare to other investments. Yeah. And then the last comment I'd make, when when you mention the mountain town and it's appreciating quickly, going back to Kent's comment, is that you can't underestimate the risk that is part of any investment, and real estate is no different. So if, if you get something that's going up quickly, you have to acknowledge that it does have the potential to go down quickly, and, and that's something that most people, um, because it's a real asset and you can see it, feel it, touch it, they tend to discount the risk level. That exists in these kinds of investments. Yeah, and I think that's a, a very important point. In particular, Emily, and I think Kevin just talked about the kind of the psychological point uh, behind that. We often think, you know, since we can look and feel it, it's a bit more real. At least I always have the property. Um, we see this with a lot of foreign investment from Asia in the United States, often taking the form of property, this idea, well, things go bad, at least I got the land. Um, but the problem with 
it is that if if there's a reason reason why um, you know things go up quickly is you know often it's associated with a lot of variance and the, the real question is you know why wasn't that priced in you know did you just kind of get lucky after the fact or is this you know um, really if it was such a great deal why wasn't that priced in kind of initially and you know it could be one is that you just got lucky and after the fact um, the second uh, answer is that it was priced in everybody just knows these are kind of a little bit higher risk securities. And let's face it, right now, there's a supply shortage. Um, people are feeling very good about the economy. The market's up so that you got a lot of uh, um, people buying second homes, things like that. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, it was all feeling awesome in 2006. I mean, it, people were just feeling so great in 2006. I mean, it's just like the markets couldn't go down. I remember having these arguments with people about property in particular, just feeling so good about it. And, you know, I, I think it's just one of those things that you don't want to put um, so much in uh, one asset class like that. I'm glad that it's not all near you because that creates even more concentration, at least you have some geographic diversification. Here's what I tell you. It's not, there's no way I'm going to convince you to unload these properties, and, and that's fine because you're feeling good about them. Um, I really hope that they continue to be cash flow positive, all that type of stuff. I just don't think you should go more into this asset class given the other numbers. If you if those other numbers were multiplied up by 10 or even potentially more than that, then I would say, okay, fine. You know, at least you got a cushion that if real estate, you know, um, maybe it's only a twenty-five percent chance that you know real estate prices come down. But at least you got a cushion. That's still a pretty high probability. I mean, that you got a cushion um, in some other areas um, against that. You just don't got that for for, for retirement. So what I'll tell you is, you know, why don't you hang on with those two properties? You've already worked through a lot of details on the management company, things like that. Um, and if you want to just hold on to them for retirement, that's great. But for the rest of your money, um, knowing max out your 401k, think about you know if if you have options for uh, something like a Roth IRA, things like that. But on top of that, open up a taxable. If you've maxed out all those things, open now's a good time to open up a taxable brokerage account. Um, and people think, well, but that's not tax efficient. But it actually is if that's where you're holding most of your stocks, like a Vanguard to a stock market fund, and your 401k. That's where you're holding most of your bonds. And you're not going to be trading that account. It's uh, you're, and you're not going to be um, getting a lot of capital gains along the way. That that that's what I would be doing is maxing out your 401k. Uh, open up the taxable brokerage account, really creating some diversification. Um, and then when those numbers get a lot bigger, you want to consider a third property at that point. Yeah, maybe you can revisit that, especially if you enjoy property management. Is that helpful, Emily? Absolutely. Great advice. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for calling. I really appreciate it. And again, speaking with Kevin Reardon, President of CFP, Shakespeare Wealth Management and um, and Wisconsin, and give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Al calling from uh, South Dakota. How can I help you, Al? Hi. Well, uh, first of all, good evening. And my question's related to uh, in retirement strategies for health savings accounts. Yeah. So I'm sixty. I'm sixty three. I haven't seen a lot of advice. Uh, on uh, the, the, the amounts of money that uh, 
uh, might give me some guidance on how much I should be putting in my health savings account. I mean, uh, should I be socking away every dollar that I can because it's uh, tax deferred going in and coming out and yeah. inheritable? And uh, like I said, I'm 63, and I believe that uh, when when I turn 65, when I'm eligible for for Medicare, I, I can no longer contribute to the health savings account. I think, or maybe I've got that wrong. But but regardless, in the years that I have left that I contribute, what are some of the things I should be thinking about and deciding how much I I should be putting in that? Yeah, and just be clear, if you have this HSA, it is presumably paired with a high deductible uh, uh, plan, and you got the taxes right, assuming that you're using this when you withdraw it for for medical expenses, uh, it's it's uh, even more favorable than the 401k because you put the money in pre-tax, it grows tax-free, and take it out um, tax-free once again um, if you're using it for medical expenses. You, you'll pay taxes if you use it for non-medical expenses. That's usually not a concern, by the way. Um, HSAs typically don't get that big. How much do you have so far in this HSA? About twenty five thousand. Okay, yeah, and quite frankly, you're going to be f- facing that easily. Um, uh, type of out of pocket medical uh, 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 when you go, go into to retirement. Um, so, uh, Kevin, I mean, your thoughts, and you know, usually the advice is, um, you know, this stuff is, uh, you know, obviously you always want to get your employer a match in your four hundred one k. Um, uh, but then, hey, you, you really want to max out your HSA as much as possible. And if I'm understanding uh, Al correctly, it, you're you're basically trying to figure out should you be maxing out your contribution, or you're concerned more about how you invest it if you have an investment uh, savings decision. My contribution to the HSA. Okay, your contribution. So, Kevin, are you kind of a believer? If as long as he gets an employer match, uh, mm-hmm. try to max out the HSA. Absolutely. In yeah. fact, just to maybe step back for the rest sure. of the audience, yeah, we call the HSA the, the triple threat account because money goes in pre-tax, uh, it grows tax-free, and then if it comes out for medical expenses, it's a tax-free withdrawal. So in terms of available uh, preferential tax accounts, this is as good as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. We've never run into anybody who's had money left over in an HSA. Yes. Uh, at the end of their life, you will go through the HSA balance of twenty-five thousand, fifty thousand, seventy-five thousand between a married couple pretty readily within five to ten years, and so maximizing that plan is—it's a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And it—it's—it's uh, it's a hypothetical. But I probably even should, should have brought it up. Uh, it just reminded people that you—you you would pay a penalty if you did withdraw the money for non-health purposes. But Al, I mean, um, you're going to definitely be using this money, and um, it can be used fairly flexibly for healthcare expenses, for things that Medicare doesn't uh, cover. Uh, fairly generous, and so the the usual rule is obviously you always want to have a good, you know, uh, emergency savings, the usual stuff. But when it comes to retirement, always get your 401k match. That's usually by far the biggest. And then if you have access to the HSA. Go over to the HSA and uh, uh, just uh, uh, build that out as much as your employer will allow, um, and then we've come back to the 401k. If you still have some room, in your case, you said you're 63, so you can contribute a total of 24,500 per year in your 401k. If you, uh, uh, you presumably still have some room after your employer match, uh, come back and top up 
um, uh, to the uh, 24,500 limit in total for yourself. Is that helpful, Al? That is, yes. Thanks for the yeah. advice. Yeah, thanks so much for calling. I really appreciate it, Al. And let me go to Jim calling from OHIO. How can I help you, Jim? Hello, Dr. Smetters. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, I, I talked to you a few months ago, and Right. I have a little bit more information now. I had another some questions here. I'm I'm 64. I'm turning 65 soon, and my previous employer, um, a Fortune 50 company, yeah. I have an offer for a lump sum or a, a single life annuity. And I wanted to just give you these numbers along with maybe uh, my other retirement numbers because I'm approaching retirement this year or next year. Yeah, and, and I I don't have <laughs> the software in front of me honestly to do the calculation. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to. Uh, be up front with you about that because I'm doing a show. But no, no, nonetheless, give, give, me, give me a sense. It's almost always taking the annuity, by the way, but just give me uh, ballparks. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I, I can tell you that, that, that they offered, the offer is 77045 and then I can have that as a lump sum next month, uh-huh. or I can have 447 a month. Four forty-seven a month. Okay, a month for you know, which which obviously doesn't go up. And right. So I I pulled my calculator out, and if 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 I pay if they if I took the monthly uh, single annuity, it would take me fourteen years and three months just to break even. Yeah, yeah. Way. And that's ignoring inflation, I assume, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, how old are you? I'm sixty-four. Sixty-four. Okay. And uh, you're right. I just did the calculation myself. Yeah, 14 years. Uh, and it's not a completely honest break even because, I mean, you're going to get um, some investment income from the lump sum. But let's gross it up, you know. Um, and let's not use uh, unfair calculations here either. And you could talk about market returns because those are more risky than the annuity. Um, let's even say 20 years. Let's just gross it up and adjust for you know market returns at a, a risk-free level. It's probably not going to go from 14 to 20. It's probably going to go from 14 to 17 or something like that. Um, but let's just, just even be hypothetical and say 20 years. Um, you know, what do you think about that? Suppose that, I mean, the chances are you're going to be alive 20 years from now. Um, and um, it is true that that annuity is not going to, you know, continue to grow with, in, with inflation. Uh, you're getting it from a private company, but it sounds like they are uh, giving you an option through an insurance contract. So that risk is probably being transferred that could that's maybe not the case, but that that sounds that's usually the scenario. Is that true, Jim? That they it's it, the annuity would be backed by an insurance company. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's typically the case. And so then, um, I I think that you know it, it, part of this is kind of your your comfort level with some of that. Tell me the rest of it. You uh, remind me. You just told me. I'm sorry. You just told me your age. You're retiring soon. Um, have you tapped? Start. I assume you haven't started tapping into Social Security yet either. No, I haven't. I haven't done that. And I have. I have about a million. I have approximately a million in uh, a traditional type of a 401k. Yeah. I have about a hundred thousand in a Roth. Okay. And, uh, and how old are you again? I'm I'm 64. I'm turning 65 very soon. <laughs> 65. Okay. And that's where you could uh, either get the 77 or uh, do the 447. And just to be clear, you clearly have enough money to delay your Social Security claim until age 70, um, even if you retire next year. Is, is that is that the plan? Pretty much so. 
Yeah. Okay. Because that's the annuity that will keep up with inflation. I mean, it, there's no particular reason. You're a healthy, you're a healthy guy, Jim. Yes. Yes, I'm healthy. I mean, I'm athletic, and I, like I say, I, I, I took my my um, the age that my father lived until, and, and my mother, and I added them together and divided by two, and I gave myself a 10% generational factor. Yeah. And I came up with 96, so I got about 31 years to go on my, on my <laughs> right. calculation. All right. <laughs> See, I, I, I can't do that with, you know, um, my roots. I, I just have these crazy, you know, uh, variances. Some of some some of us, we, we, you know, die quickly, and some of us, we live for like 105. And so uh, the average would make no sense. But I, t- I tell you what, Jim, I mean, it looks like you're a healthy guy, so forth. I mean, so Kevin, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Typically, these calculations show that annuity is the better way to go, but you may have some different thoughts. We, it's really, for us, it's just purely a calculation. Yeah. And so we're doing the internal rate of return of that annuity stream until your life expectancy. And then if it's less than 3%, we, we take the lump sum with the belief that we can make more than that in the markets with the lump sum. If it's greater than five and a half, it's a no-brainer to take the annuity. And somewhere in between, you have to gauge, you know, preference, liquidity, life expectancy, and things like that. And so that's really, for us, how we approach it. I I know in Wisconsin, there's a few pensions that are quite lucrative with a 7 or 8% internal rate of return on some of these calculations. And then some of them come in at 2.5 or 3%, and we're definitely... Uh, recommending they take the lump sum in those situations. Yeah. So th- often with a new um, uh, buyout like this, chances are the internal rate of return on this, I'm just ballparking it, is probably a little north of 6% is my guess here, Jim. I will say my break-even internal rate of return is a bit lower than, than Kevin's only because of the risk adjustment. Um, and it is true on one hand you have inflation as a risk that you can – try to hedge a bit more in the markets on the other hand which is a serious risk on the other hand um you know i i do think it, that the annuity stream being backed by an insurance contract is going to be um should be compared more with a bond um but having said that e- even at um the five five and a half percent my guess is that you're probably a bit north um, of that, here's one way you can figure that out. Uh, this this complex thing called this internal uh, return is that you could actually take that annuity stream um, and go out to you know your life expectancy. You said 96. Go out to 100 um, because there's some insurance value that's kicking in for that annuity um, that is a longevity insurance that you're not getting from the lump sum. So just go out to 100. It sounds like you're almost or, already there. Discount you 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 want to um, discount back um, and essentially just discount each year back to current value. So you know next year uh, you would take that four four seven divided by one plus the interest rate, um, and then the following year you take that four four seven divided by one plus the interest rate. That whole thing squared. Um, the following year the whole thing you know four four seven the whole thing divided by one plus the interest rate, 
um, you know, uh, that one plus thing raised a, th- a third power. You just you just keep on going out that way. And the interest rates on your Excel thing, it's just a number that you're plugging in, and you don't have to use Excel Solver to get tr- get tricky about it. You can just play with the interest rate and figure out what is the implied interest rate that must uh, uh, make that that annuity stream equal to $77,000 in current value. And, you know, my gut tells me when you're using your life expectancy um, that it is probably uh, north of 6% um, would be that. So, I mean, but that's how I, I would do it. Do, did you understand the calculation, Jim? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's that, that's what I would be doing, and um, you can do that quickly in Excel. By the way, if you don't have Excel, you can get online uh, for free um, as well. So thanks so much for calling, Jim. I uh, have to end this segment here. Fantastic job, Kevin. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Ken. And you can find out more about Kevin by going to his website, Shakespeare W M, uh, as in William Mary ShakespeareWM dot com. See you next Tuesday. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.